Before we start, a couple of things that have happened since we released our episode on McCluskey a few weeks back. Firstly, I asked about a lyric we discussed on the show on Twitter. McCluskey's own Andrew Falcus replied, clearing up my question about the song She Will Only Bring You Happiness. Was it Note to Self, Be a Wreck by Half Past Ten, or Be Erect? Falco, or Shit Rock, as he styles himself on Twitter, that's shit underscore rock, assured me that it was erect, but not in any bizarre forward planning for the sexually dysfunctional sense, but simply stood up, as in out of bed. So there you have it. Also, McCluskey's manager joined our Facebook group with a bunch of background, which I'd love to share here, but there's way too much good stuff to cram into my intro. So I'll just say that if you want more McCluskey, head over to facebook.com slash groups slash temp fans or search temporary fandoms, which is, of course, where this whole podcast started. That group has been listening to entire discographies for over five years, and this here podcast exists in part as a way to make sure that all that great content isn't lost. You can find the show in all the places you look for podcasts or at our website, which is tempfans.com. The show notes also include links to a Spotify version of the show where you can listen to the chat with actual tunes. Make sure you use that link, though, because the playlist is a bugger to find via Spotify itself. But I've said way too much about McCluskey in the intro to a completely different artist, one with a particularly interesting discography to which we'll be dedicating three whole episodes. But on today's show, we'll be listening to and talking about the records she recorded before she even released her debut solo album as we anticipate Björk via the singular Icelandic indie pop stars, The Sugar Cubes. Hello there, welcome to Temporary Fandoms. Um, again, I have no idea what episode number this is. Also, we've started recording them in different orders and they come out at different times. Anyway, I'm Ewan. I'm Nick. There was a bit of a pause. I think he forgot we were going to say that one, but we're good, we're good, we're good. Um, so this season, the way we decided to approach these seasons is to basically treat it like a music festival as a lineup. Um, so have like a big headliner, uh, a legacy act, um, some more obscure stuff that you might discover in the middle of the afternoon. Um, so already, as we're recording this, we've done McCluskey, we've done uh, Future of the Left, we've done Neutral Milk Hotel, and now we're taking a hard left or a hard right, and we're going to do something different, um, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, thank you to everybody who's left a review. Uh, that's been really good. Also, it's been, it was suddenly great today to discover that the ex-manager of McCluskey, listened to the podcast, found us, and joined the Facebook group and made comments and gave us extra information, which was pretty sweet, actually. Yeah. Also, we were recommended on an algorithm. Algorithm! Yay! Absolutely. <laughs> How did we that exist? happen? I have no idea, because I'm really terrible with sort of SEO stuff and, and tagging things. I, I'm sort of half-ass it most of the time. Um, anyway, joining us, we got, we got two people new to the pod today, but not new to podcasting. Um, and the Venn diagram that is our pod is looking pretty interesting because from the Philip Larkin podcast, tying in all that air, we've got Lynn Lockwood. Hello, Lynn. Uh, hiya. Thank you for having welcome. me. You are Sorry. more than welcome. <laughs> uh, we've also got from Dance and Architecture and Beat, that Beat Rehab co-buddy, I guess. <laughs> yeah, um, something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Liam Maloney. Hey, Liam, welcome. Hiya, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm bricking this. <laughs> it's far more professional than I'm used to. You have a pod. Well, uh, wait, 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 our podcast is more prof- uh, shit. We should really try and get some money for this stuff. Oh yeah, um, there's a Patreon. Join the Patreon. Uh, help cover our costs. All of yeah. that stuff. So far, um, it's just my sister. I think. 
It is just your sister. Uh, my <laughs> wife did suggest that she does it, and I was like, but we've got a joint bank account, so that would just be me paying for my own Patreon, so I'm not, I'm not sure that would work. Yeah, she took that out beforehand, Ewan. <laughs> um, so, um, as you know, uh, one person generally curates, and I also hate the word curation, but we're sticking with it till we find a better one. And today, and for the next few episodes, that will be Liam Maloney. Liam, who are we doing over the next few episodes? Oh, um, I was uh, I was listening to a few old recordings of kind of DJ sets they'd done, and uh, the word iconoclasts kept getting batted around quite a lot. And I think that's probably the best descriptive of them. It was of course the like of course, apparently, of course the incomparable Bjork, Bjork, Bjork. However, we're gonna bastardize it in English. I imagine we'll pronounce it in every single way possible over the next mm. few episodes. Um, and so we're going to do Björk, Björk, and some of her earlier stuff. I mean, arguably the biggest thing to come out of Iceland, apart from maybe the ash cloud, um, <laughs> so, and that had, has had a big impact on music. Um, but today we're not going straight into the Björk, Björk. I'm just going to say Björk, it's easier for me. We're not going straight into the Björk that everybody knows now. Where are we starting today, Liam? Um, we're going to ro- rewind back right to the start and kind of at least mention something that maybe is worth flagging up as uh, a, a point to orientate around, and then we're going to go from there, really, and explore what she did with people like Sugar Cubes, and then the bit of work that she did before she kind of becomes Bjork, as we know Bjork. But the place we have to kind of kick off is all the way back in 1977, when I think she is 10 or 11 years old. Um, with her official first solo album. Well, this may oh. be the only, the first and last time we we have a ten year old artist uh, performing, unless unless we do one about musical youth or first or record I ever bought you. was musical youth. Musical youth. Our mine was our mine was Sly Fox. Let's go all the way, Liam. Oh God, I've got, I've, I couldn't even tell yeah, you. We haven't rehearsed this, obviously. No, no. <laughs> See, no, I was going to suggest um, it wasn't Little Stevie Wonder quite young. When he was. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was, mm. he was. Okay, so what, join us next season for the Donny Osmond, Young Michael Jackson, <laughs> Stevie Wonder, Musical Youth, and Baby Bjork episode. Um, we're going to get cracking. Um, and we've already had people tell us as we're putting this together, there was other stuff that Bjork was involved in and the Sugar Cubes were involved in, etc., etc. But we have to start somewhere and we have to end somewhere. Otherwise, we are going on forever, ever. Uh, like talking about... Or, or, God, don't, don't. I still have recurring nightmares. I wake up in sweats about that. That is going to happen again in season five. Um, anyway, I've been talking for way too long. You're going to hear Liam in a bit talking through the album that we're not counting, plus the album <laughs> she did with someone else, and the album that's a bit of a curio. And we'll be back after this. You've read the title for the podcast, you know we're doing Bjork. It's not surprising, so I'm not going to bury the lead here. I am going to make this a little bit personal for the intro bit, but I will keep it as quick as possible, because frankly, you don't know me from Adam. Suffice to say that before I was a Bjork fan, I was not a Bjork fan. I was almost actively anti-Bjork. I found her weird, I found her try-hard, and frankly, just not very cool. However, my definition of cool around that time was, well, not very cool. 
And I was far more concerned with the likes of Blur and Skunk and Nancy and, I don't know, respectable, if not slightly forgotten, dance music like Kevin Fisher, Sasha, and frankly, anything that was the accepted norm among my peer group at that time. In my early teens, I had very little exposure to what you generally term alternative music. Bar those few exceptions I just mentioned, it was catching bits of MTV2, some late night Radio 1, maybe occasional bits of John Peel, which I found baffling and delightful in equal measure, and snatches of whatever the older kids were listening to at school. That was about as deep as I ever got. But then, in very quick succession, I was assaulted by three bits of Bjork. I mean, her musical output, anyway. Firstly, the video for It's Oh So Quiet was undergoing something of a renaissance on the handful of music channels that we had at my house. There was this screaming big band jazz effort that was as intriguing to an impressionable teen as sex, drugs and techno was. I wasn't really into rock and roll. Secondly, the burgeoning P2P file-sharing community was building a serious head of steam by this point before the Pirate Bay and LimeWire and Kazaa and all of those things that gave your computer chlamydia was the gorgeous original originator Napster. As well as somewhere to infect your PC with viruses, you could also download music on Napster. I don't know if you knew that. And even more excitingly, you could download really low-quality DJ mixes. In a raft of these quite poor quality remixes that I downloaded, I managed to grab Bjork's 1998 Radio 1 Breeze Block set, hosted by the indomitable Marion Hobbs. Also quiet had grabbed my attention, but this DJ set absolutely blew my tiny little mind to shreds. It jumped from stuff like Black Dog, to Nico to Aphex Twin, to the Jackson 5, to Bollywood covers of I Will Always Love You, to Public Enemy. It was this kind of mad eclecticism that was almost too much for me to kind of cope with. I hadn't realised that genre and music was that porous or that kind of flexible before. And this DJ mix is still one of the things that I put my love of music down to, to this very day. The final straw was when I grabbed a wildly illegal bootleg Russian compilation of her first few albums that contained stuff like, that sounded like James Bond themes, and then had things in odd parentheses like non-toilet mix. And at that moment, that's where it jumped from being an intriguing relationship to an obsessive relationship. But before we can dive into the content of that bootleg, and dive into Bjork Mill generally, we need to wind the clock all the way back. If we're being pedantic, the very first Bjork album is released in 1977 when she is 11 years old. The album, just called Bjork, self-titled, is a whopping 13 years away from the next time that her name appears as the main artist on a record, which is Glinglow. The record itself, while, you know, certainly diverting for a few moments, is at best a novelty. It's pretty widely accepted that, 
although this is something that Bjork did and maybe represents an early foray into recording music for her, it's not actually a proper Bjork album. You know, if, if we're talking canon, it's only the deepest, darkest goblins at the bottom of Bjork's discographical well that really count this as noteworthy. Actually, you know what? Let's go full deep humble brag here. I recorded my first little white label at 11. It sold 12 whole copies, and even I wouldn't call that part of my discography. So certainly something that Bjork released back in 1977 that sold fairly poorly, it just it doesn't count. So yeah, the self-titled debut album, although that isn't anything to do with debut and it's not really the first album, that's why we're not going to talk about it. And, you know, just to rub some salt into the wound, it's not really released on any streaming platforms either, and probably with good reason. After the 1977 album and several years swirling around the avant-garde pop and rock scene in Reykjavik, Bjork falls into the orbit of a group of musicians from numerous bands like Kukul and Bad Taste and Perko Pilnik and others I can't pronounce who quickly kind of coalesce into the Sugar Cubes. Several members of the band even went as far as to say that the whole point of the group was to just make some money. And with that less than laudable goal, the Sugar Cubes launched themselves into the ocean of post punk alt pop with their debut record not but not Bjork's debut it's different called Life's Too Good recorded and released in 1988 so Life's Too Good you get moments of post-punk and experimentation that feels easily understandable to say anyone who's like heard the, the Cure or Susie and the Banshees um but there are other moments that feel really kind of well frankly quite odd and frankly less successful uh, in the case of Life's Too Good, maybe you could use the word varied and inconsistent a bit interchangeably. There's some really beautiful moments like Birthday, you know, this kind of big euphoric number, which I'm sure we'll get into. There's funky kind of groovy things like Blue Eyed Pop and frankly just a really bloody good post-punk like Deus. Deus is like the first time you properly hear how Bjork's voice is going to end up sounding like in the middle of her solo career uh, but there's other things in there like traitor and sick for toys that are either weak or just kind of make no sense in context and when stuff goes wrong it's usually because of the nonsensical gibbering of Einar on the following year 1989 here today, tomorrow, next week is spat out, primarily from the mouth of Einar Orn, into the world. Only a short period of time had elapsed between their debut record and this new one, and really one has to question whether the band were striking while the iron was hot, or rushing in before they'd learned what they needed to. A look at the reviews probably lands us in the latter of those two camps. At best, reviews for the record were pretty lacklustre. There are some great moments in between all the lacklustre nonsense. Water sees Bjork given a bit of free reign to go for it. Tidal Wave again sees Bjork go tropical. Beetlejuice 2, anyone? And Pump goes a bit kind of Peter Gabriel talking headsy in places. 
But 16 tracks is pretty severely bloated and doesn't exactly leave you wanting more. Not so hot on the heels of Here Today, Tomorrow, Next Week came their final effort, Stick Around for Joy. The bewildered public hadn't really warmed to Einar's, um, shall we say, unique style of vocal, and Here Today had flopped like a Victorian lady on a fainting couch. As a consequence, the band decided a little hiatus is what's needed to get over these blues. In that time, Bjork swans off to the UK to hang out with some of the bods from the burgeoning rave scene, and Einar remains blissfully quiet. But the international bungee cord of contractual obligations drags Bjork back to the sugar cubes for one final hurrah record in 1992 called Stick Around for Joy. I like the title actually because it kind of proves that got to stick around, you've got to give something time if you are going to produce good songs. And that's kind of where we end up. Certainly this record is more polished than Life's Too Good, but maybe lacking a little bit of soul, perhaps somewhere. They do get a little bit lost in their darker moments. But it contains a really solid roster of tracks, um, which each one of which is probably worth a single release on its own. Um, and also continues the trend of the last track on each Sugar Cubes album being the worst one. Um, but, you know, this album has got Hit, which was their biggest hit, arguably. Um, Gold's on there, great tune. Vitamin's great. Hetero Scum is also great. It's kind of what's not to love about this last Sugar Cubes record, if we're being honest. So the exact kind of provenance or where Glinglow came from, which is the album we're going to quickly chat about, is quite a difficult thing to actually describe. So Glinglow actually happens before the last Sugar Cubes record. And it maybe comes from Bjork hanging out with um, a jazz band at the Hotel Borg in uh, Reykjavik. Maybe it comes from this jazz band hearing Bjork on a radio a few years earlier. Maybe this comes from Bjork hanging out with this jazz band in a studio. We're not quite sure. The kind of stories are fairly apocryphal. But what does happen is Bjork ends up playing with this band at the Hotel Bjork and then they end up kind of making a record together. And it's a record that stands completely separate from everything else in Bjork's back catalogue. And it's a straight-up vocal jazz album. It's about 50 minutes long um, and it's delightful. It's absolutely delightful. It doesn't fit with anything she's ever done or anything she will ever do again, I imagine. But it is this little moment where you just hear Bjork being a singer. She's not an artist. She's not a novelty. She's not this kind of post-punk oddity like we get in The Sugar Cubes. She's just a, an interesting, fun, lively singer with certainly a kind of unusual voice that I imagine some people might... Um, Bolcat, one can imagine, but if you've made it this far in, you know what you're dealing with when it comes to Bjork. As far as the record itself goes, it's a collection of jazz standards. Typically, they've all been translated into Icelandic, with the exception of the last two tracks, which is Ruby Baby and uh, Hammerstein Tune, which is I Can't Help Loving That Man. If you 
are sad enough to own the vinyl like I do and the CD, you'll notice that on the vinyl, the last two tracks, which are the best two, unfortunately, Ruby Baby and Can't Help Loving That Man, those two are missing from that release, which is an absolute killer. But the opening track, Glinglow, has this kind of Christmassy, kind of arpeggiated little piano number that feels like a really nice intro to what's about to kick off. Then you get into Lukta Gvendur. I'm going to not attempt to pronounce any of the others after this point, um, which is this quite fun, quite screamy almost um, jazz standard. It just really packs a punch. And it's just quite a joyous little number. And then there's stuff from like Irving Berlin. There's some other kind of Rodgers and Hammerstein stuff on there. It's just a really lovely collection of jazz standards and it totally sits apart from everything else and kind of works as a consequence of the fact that it sits so separately to everything else she's ever done that if anything is its kind of key selling point um it's a wonderful little record and an oddity and just delightful Hello there, welcome back to Temporary Fandoms. Um, you have been listening to Leah Maloney talk you through the, the, the pre-Bjork Bjork years, I guess. Um, so we've got the album that's, we're not really counting, the Sugar Cube stuff, and then a sort of weird one, weird one at the end. So I guess we're going to start, and this is not a sentence I sort of want to start the podcast, we're going to start with 12-year-old Bjork. Um, 11, Liam, maybe 10. 11? Oh, and recorded when she was 11, released when she was 12, so there, there, there is a slice. We're, we're both correct. Yes. Uh, we're going to start with 12-year-old Bjork um, up in Iceland. Um, how, Liam, how did this album even happen? Um, well, I don't know about you guys, but one of the things that um, I heard across, like you remember when we were all on Napster and we were all like dragging things, that, like you would go online, you would search your favourite artist, and it would just be this raft of badly labelled, badly metadata up, files and you'd go oh that's a bit of a curiosity the thing i found on there was um her version of i love to love which was obviously very famous and someone sent me that on a kind of mixtape swap a few years ago and i came across where the actual source materials and um it turned out that it was for like a radio broadcast that uh, bjork had done from her school when she was 11 and off the back of that little radio broadcast her just doing a little cute version of um who does i love to love oh god my brain's gone i need my notes Sorry, I'm trying to keep you on one screen and not. I'm singing. I'm singing the words I love to love to a yeah. totally different song in my head. I'm thinking like the Nolans. Is that the one that I know? Is that the Nolans one? <laughs> sing, it, sing it, sing it, sing it. Oh, I can't sing for Tom. I love to love. Oh my baby, baby I just love to dance. dance. Yeah, that's the one. Trailer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was a disco tune originally. That's what it was. Yeah. But yeah, I did. Yeah, did the Nolans do it? I don't know. Um, but it was a disco track originally by Tina Charles, I Love to Love, and that made it onto a little local radio station that was obviously recorded for posterity, and that's the thing that was doing the rounds on old maps and stuff. But off the back of the popularity of that in Iceland at the time, back in the late 70s, um, Bjork decides to head off to a studio with the kind of support of her mother, I believe, and records this weird little curiosity of an album from 1977 um, self-titled, as I said, and it's um, a, a strange combination of like some coversy stuff. It, oh, 
how do I how do I be kind about this without saying it's just not very good? <laughs> well, I mean, it's not very it's not very good if we're looking at it as part of Bjork's discography. For a twelve year old in nineteen seventy seven or an eleven year old in nineteen sixty six, it's pretty fucking good, to be honest. I mean. I was. I mean, when I was eleven, God knows what sort of album I'd have made. There is that. There is that. Dragged into Beacon Radio in Wolverhampton because I'd, I'd sung a song. Jeez, oh my God, it would have been awful. Probably Slade covers or something like that. I want to hear that. I, th- I think one of the reasons I get really uncomfortable around this record is because her voice is really not not fantastic. In that you know her pitching's a bit off. She's obviously really young. She's quite um, innocent at this point, and. One of the things that kind of comes up con- constantly throughout Bjork's career is people really taking umbrage at Bjork's voice quite generally. The idea of this kind of screeching Icelandic mm-hmm. pixie that, you know, kind of she cultivates or is cultivated around her in the 90s. This is kind of it and it's probably most raw and most extreme. And so I feel like I have to almost defend <laughs> little Bjork here from the mm-hmm. detractors. I mean, I, I- guess so. I mean, Sorry, Lynn. No, I was just going to say I, I I didn't want to listen to it more than once, but I did actually quite enjoy it. I like the little pixie voice, and I thought for an eleven-year-old it was astonishing, really. And I thought it was really quirky. Bear in mind, I live in in a house with somebody who plays a lot of like the swingle singers and various charity shop classics <laughs> all day long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm quite used to sort of quirky music, and uh, yeah, it it. I thought it was really, really interesting. There were some interesting kind of disco tracks and yeah. Yeah, there's like a, cute, there's a Stevie but... Wonder cover on there, I think, yeah, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, really I, I thought very creative actually and very unusual. You just wouldn't want to listen to it more than once in my book. I wouldn't know why. Unless you were down the uh, disco, maybe. To be honest, there have been many albums over the well, two and a half seasons up to this point of, of this podcast that I haven't wanted to listen to more than once. <laughs> yeah, and some, some, of, some of those stone cold classics are to once. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think this sits alongside Tago Mago, no matter how much you want it to, Ewan. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, honestly, I would probably listen to 12-year-old Bjork over Tago Mago any day of the week. But I think that's now just to annoy you. Um, yes, <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I heard that she did this and then they sort of offered her a chance to do another one and she said no, took the money and brought a piano. Um, okay. That's the story I read. Um, so even if this isn't Bjork, Bjork, I mean, it's a sort of it, it sort of helped her along the way. It gave her the confidence, oh, sure, to go off and do other stuff. Mm. And that's um, really cool and- at eleven to choose a piano because I think if I'd been given a load of money at eleven, I'd probably bought a pony or something. So, oh, I'd have bought pogs. Pogs, <laughs> <laughs> or a big uh, kind of wall-sized poster of Blake Seven. Liam, do you know how, how sort of successful it was? I mean, was it would, would people in Iceland have known about this? I guess, because I'm wondering sort of more if, like, when she got older and started to do her own thing, whether this kind of hung over her a bit within Iceland as, you know, she's this, like, child star. Oh, that's really interesting. So I cannot answer the second half of that. What I can tell you is, um, in the original pressing, it's been repressed many times since, but the original pressing, uh, they only pressed a 1,000 copies. So it was never meant to be this... No, it was never expected to be a, a huge hit. It was probably very well known, considering what Reykjavik has less say, than 100,000 right. people in it. Yeah, it is most of Iceland, the thousand yeah. copies. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it, if one per household, that's a significant percentage of Iceland that's probably owned a copy of that record at one point. Um, but I, I, I don't think it was ever really held over it because everyone just refers to it as, you know, 
she was a child at the time. It was just one of those things. It's like when you see uh, Ryan Gosling on the Mickey Mouse Club. That's not really what Ryan Gosling mm. does. Well, mm. well, um, um, wait, which which Ryan is Ryan Gosling? Because I always get mixed up with the Ryans. Um, no, the no, emotionless no. one. Yeah, the emotionless one. Oh, the very one, very one, handsome one. blonde one. Aren't, aren't all the Ryans handsome? I mean, there's a lot of Ryans. There's the Reynolds. There's the Goslings. There's the. Oh, oh, Ryan. <laughs> You're out of fresh out of Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, we're gonna, we're going to move on because we didn't. We said this is the one we're not really going to count. Um, interestingly, I mean, after this, in her, I know teenage years, she sort of went through a string of bands at school, like uh, punk and avant garde and jazz fusion bands. Um, and then one what, 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 what kooky? Kukul, oh, I think it's an L, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's an L. Uh, my handwriting is terrible. But and they got signed by Crass's label. That's right. Uh, yeah. Which is I mean, that's a pretty good bit of history to start with, like moving into there. I mean, but then what she moved out went out of school, we got what from 77 to 88 is the next time we sort of pick up a trail with well, the sugar cube. Oh yeah, nineteen eighty eight is uh, life's too good. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, how did the sh- I mean? How did the sugar cubes? How did they end up with that? I mean, I read that it was sort of a bunch of anarcho punks, ex punks doing a sort of jokey poppy thing, and it just sort of took control of them a bit. The the impression that I've got from uh, the kind of scant bits of history that's actually recorded about all this stuff is that um, all the bands like Kukul and things that she's in, and the kind of circles that she's running in. Post obviously first Bjork record that we don't discuss, um, and before the kind of kickoff of the Sugar Cubes, um, there's a very small kind of selective group of people who are engaging with this stuff, and so it's a really quite tight scene. Everyone knows everyone. Everyone's running together. They all hang out at places. That, well, probably I think from about 1989, 1990 onwards, they're all hanging out at clubs like NASA, um, which is one of the um, only clubs in like Iceland, and so it's this quite interesting group of for the time really forward thinking counterculture what's the population what's the population of Reykjavik I have no idea is it like let's a ginormous mass- <laughs> uh, let's google let's Reykjavik. google <laughs> uh, I'm already on Wikipedia so uh, capital of Iceland 131,000 okay so if they're in this scene and everyone in Reykjavik knows everyone I mean I don't know I mean Nick's from grew up in Hull Lynn where did you grow up uh, Bishop Stortford in Hertfordshire, very small. Hertfordshire. Liam? Uh, North Manchester. Okay, so, like, I mean, basically, for most of us, it's the equivalent of our local band scene when mm. we were growing up and the local indie club that was the only mm. one everyone went mm. to, and that being the entire scene in the country. Yeah, because yeah, uh, I was reading about Kukul and they called it um, a super group. And I just, it was like the, the all the uh, best avant-garde in Iceland formed a super group. I thought that was really great. It's funny you say that because that was in, in my notes I put on, on Sugar Cubes because once I read about them, I thought the Sugar Cubes were formed out of a bunch of other bands and that yeah. I wondered if they were perceived as being like a bit of a super group. Yeah, I think they were. Yeah. Iceland. But then doesn't this go back to the idea of like, all your mates that were in bands, at some point, some of them joined a new band with each other. And if you'd gone back, if if 16-year-old me back in Wolverhampton had gone, oh, are you going to go see my mate's band? They're like a super group now. It would have just been, <laughs> no, it's just, it's just my mates who have just formed a new band. <laughs> um, okay, so, I mean, so what? Life's Too Good came out in 88. Um, I mean, what? 
So around about the time for me, I was watching the ITV chart show a lot. And there was always the indie chart rundown would, would come up. And that was when the indie chart included Kylie, because Kylie was on an indie label. In theory, they were an indie label. So, so I didn't really know what the indie chart was supposed to be. But birthday was everywhere. You know, I mean, 14-year-old me. Yeah, 14-year-old me. Birthday was everywhere. You could not, every week mm-hmm. birthday was on. and that so i mean this went platinum i mean as an album this was an unexpected crazy success probably on the back of birthday i mean i, I heard mm-hmm. they, they got on snl they, they got onto letterman over the years they all they, they became global stars mm. of this weird little pop album with weird lyrics i mean there's a song about cycling it's with this one with she's cycling along there's a car crash and she's singing about the car crash that might crash yeah yeah and it's just what <laughs> How did this become so big? How did this become a platinum seller? I mean, Liam, I mean, from what you can gather, um, what was happening with them when this was taking off? I mean, were they embracing it or were they just going, I don't know? That's a, oh, God, that's a really tough question. Oh, God, can you frame that slightly differently? That's a really hard question for me. Sorry, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Liam, Liam, what happened when they got successful? Mm. Well, I'm... Birthday was obvious. Yeah, as you say, you've kind of you've already got there. Really, birthday was already massive, and I think the immediate response seems to have been, "Let's do more." Immediately, let's do more, and then so they're kind of back into the studio almost immediately to release an album the very next year, which is the here today, tomorrow, next week. Um, so they're kind of pumping out this stuff at a rate of knots to try and kind of capitalize on this. Um, I suppose what was at the time a really kind of unique. Uh, kind of palette that they're bringing together with you know Bjork on one side and then Einar doing Einar. Uh. Uh, we, got, we, we do have to discuss Einar at some <laughs> point. We do have to talk Einar. about Einar. Yeah. This is Einar's episode. <laughs> He's never coming back. No. Let's, let's bring it. Go on. So just go. Okay. Okay. So so um, for various reasons, um, listener, this this episode got stalled a bit. And usually, what I do is I because I'm busy. I finish listening to. The albums about a day before and so i don't really have time to go back over stuff so what my opinions are, are pretty much quite fresh um i've had next week to go back over the sugar cubes and my opinions last week were really quite positive einar has really started to piss me off <laughs> um it's sort of like there's a it's, it's like i can imagine i don't know there's a fiona apple song or a jo, no a joanna newsome song i'm listening to this amazing joanna newsome song then somebody suddenly this voice pops up and goes, "Oh, oh, spaghetti!" And I'm just like, <laughs> "What is he doing there?" <laughs> it's like uh, the way I can describe Einar. If you if you've not dug into the sugar cubes yet, it is post punk, but they've accidentally given the lead vocal to Flavor Flav. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Kind of what Einar does in this, I think. I think it's a sort of unique yeah. double act, though, Einar and Björk together, because mm. because he pulls the unusual feat of making Björk seem like the straight part of the act. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just like, um, I mean, I, I, I mean, listeners who are not from the UK, you may not have seen like the show Peep Show, but I've just been imagining there was a scene where they all got into a, a studio and there was like jazz and there was super hands and there was their girlfriend at the time. And this is how I imagine it is. They're all doing something. And Einar's like the jazz from Peep Show yeah. who's just sort of there and no one's told him to go away yet. <laughs> I mean, there's one song that Bjork's singing and he just repeats her line in a really bad out of key. 
Oh, poor Ina. I feel like I want to defend him now. Well, no, you should. I, I, I like that Ina has his defenders. Unfortunately, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure we have any of them here. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, I can defend him a little bit. I mean, I think... He is irritating, and everybody I've said to, I'm listening to Sugar Cubes, everyone's going, oh, is that the one where there's a man going bicycle in in a, in a strange <laughs> accent? I'm like, yeah, that's the one. Um, and he is like Flavor Flav. But I think at the same sort of time, there were bands like the B-52s, and it reminded me of that, and, I, and you know, the two different voices, a male and female voice. And also, I, I like, for example, Motor Crash, where they tell a story together. There's a few songs where it kind of works, where you've got a male and female voice. And if you watch the video to Motor Crash, it really, it, like, Ina's the police officer and Bjork's the uh, criminal on the on the motorbike. It, it's quite, it, I quite like it. And then that one about uh, later on, eat, eat the Menu, where Bjork's the... Uh, annoyed waitress and I now can't choose what to eat you know and they're kind of like singing a little quirky song together and I thought well that's actually quite nice and I think Bill must have liked Einar doing this otherwise she'd have kicked him out surely they would have kicked him out sooner if they really well, didn't like it, him being there band? well I don't but know no, but she could have just said I'm not doing band. this anymore I, I heard a story uh, I think it was uh, I think it was from John Henderson that basically um Whenever they were in sort of record meetings and stuff, they'd wait until Einar went for a piss or something, <laughs> and then offer them a sweetener to kick him out of the band. <laughs> I, I kind of oh, always got Einar. the impre- poor Einar. I kind sorry, of sorry. always got the impression that Einar was the one who was kind of the head, like figurehead of the band. Whether he actually had any say in what went on, whether he actually provided mm. any direction or brought anything to this, I honestly don't know. But I always get the impression that Einar is kind of the lead of the sugar cubes to the point where it seems mm. like even though Bjork is clearly the point where the interest happens that she's kind of shoved to the back behind Einar's mm. mm. inflatable there is that weird thing. ego. I mean he he is front and center quite a lot. Uh and he was probably very big on that scene. So he probably had a bit of a reputation in Reykjavik. But do you remember how with say New Kids on the Block, there was one who really couldn't sing. I think it was Jordan. I'm not sure. Like they'd go step one, and somebody would sing. And I step two, you can't do that thing. And like, and also Posh Spice. I mean, for me, Einar is like the Posh Spice. Every so often, <laughs> they go, "Oh Jesus, you're, you're flat. Why are you doing this?" Well, I, I, um, by the way, we talked about not having mass- many people on to defend Einar. Um, previous guest Aaron Troy White, we know for a fact, is a big defender of Einar. But also, whenever I I can't remember what Einar looks like, but in my head, I picture him looking like Aaron Troy White. I don't know why. <laughs> we now have to add pictures of them side by side to the show yeah. now, so you realise that, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, of oh, course, gotcha. I- Einar went on to, you know, do quite a lot of interesting things off the Sugar Cubes. He's, he's well respected in that kind of alternative kind of post-punk sort of music scene. And, uh, you know, uh, he recorded with Marky Smith. Yeah, that's right. And recorded, so, you know, he has got fans around the world it must be weird to be the second strangest person in that room <laughs> <laughs> Mark, i mean yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he had worked with bjork though he had he had um there was a thing uh, i can't remember what i watched it recently of bjork looking inside of television oh that yeah, is that, that, yeah yeah, yeah. Goes, and here's the city and it's like a little town and i'm just like yeah but you sounded more normal than i know <laughs> Um, okay, before we move on, there's also, I mean, sound-wise, there's a whole mishmash of various things going on. There's this sort of gothy bass from the mm, 80s, mm. picking through a few things. They haven't quite got into the synth 
of later albums. Um, Delicious Demon That's has a great an tune. amazing indie chorus, which yeah. sometimes doesn't fit with the verse, but it's still a great tune. It's um, a great tune. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great, they're a great, great, great indie band. I'm not sure they're a platinum selling indie band, if I'm honest. There are other bands, I think, who probably would have deserved more. But if you, are, if you were Iceland's number one, which makes you uh, sort of a rarity for the rest of the world, you're singing in, generally in English, so American and the UK will embrace you a bit. You've got Bjork, who is interesting, and she's cultivated her voice by this point, mm. uh, which, which I read was a deliberate thing, that she deliberately went for the uh, tone shifts, like she worked on it a little bit in, in, in her teens. Um, this is going to be interesting and successful, you know? Um, and Einar's still there, so fair play to it. Fair play. Actually, fair play, Einar. Fair play. Yeah, yeah he managed fair three play. albums, didn't he? He managed three good Chubby yeah. Cubes records, so fair do some. Yeah, just I, I always thought um, Birthday was very much like The Cure as well. I wondered if there was a bit of a kind of crossover, you know, with that sound becoming very popular and the quirky lyrics. I mean, the video is like a Cure video with uh, little plastic spiders and things like that. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it did remind me, of the, and there was a, there is a kind of goth overtone, I, I agree. Uh, some of the stuff reminds me a bit of Susie and a Bunches and uh, Cold Sweat reminds me of The Cure. Um, and that was very much at the time, wasn't it? That's kind of in flavour in 1988. Yeah, yeah. So. But it's and also got... It. I mean, the band... Sorry. Don't go, go for it. Okay. Um, that's it. The band is basically a mix of people who were in anarch, anarchist punk goth groups. Um, all I'm going to... I'm going to say we've got Bjork, we've got Einar, and we've got Ziggy on drums, and two who I'm not even going to try and pronounce. Um, but apparently they all came from... They, brought, they came from bands that were far more alternative, I guess, in terms of what our ears would perceive, and they created a pop album. It would be like if um, someone from the Sisters of Mercy um, and Marky e. Smith and uh, I don't know some uh, someone from the Clash got together and made a made a pop album. They kind of end up with, as a consequence of that, though, they kind of end up whilst they do sort of fit. Like Susie and the Banshees is a great comparison, actually. Where they kind of fit in that kind of gothy post-punky somewhere in that in that zone and it is very popular there's weird stuff going on that no one else would do like even in birthday which like you say was a, a did it did it hit number one i can't remember but it was a huge single um the second verse for that it's out of tune like purposefully out of tune to the point where it kind of grates on you and no one else would have done that at the time everyone would just gone you're insane but well, because they're kind of yeah. coming out of this like little indie place, it's a bit more self-produced, it's a bit more independent from everything that's going on. They can get away with breaking rules a little bit. I mean, well, I mean, obviously you, no, nobody would be surprised to hear that. I mean, that one of the first times it was played in the UK was John Peel. Um, and I'm going to say, and I was reading earlier, I'm literally reading right now. Um, it got number one in the 1987 Festive 50. Oh, so obviously no, it was... It was sort of uh, uh, taken on by people. And, that they, yeah, they played Saturday Night Live. I mean, they, they played a, a show in New York and Bowie and Iggy Pop came to watch them. They were the thing. Um, okay, so probably a good time. We've already mentioned, Lim already mentioned that they were basically decided to throw another one out pretty much immediately uh, to try and build that momentum. And so the next year we had Here Today, Tomorrow, Next Week, um, which... Does have double? Uh, could you say double Einar? 
I mean, uh, yeah. how can I have another album with more Einar? It does have more Einar. <laughs> I was I was looking at my notes for this, and it just said he's louder, more intrusive, and even less coherent. <laughs> that's yeah. That's my scathing I, review of Einar in this. I've got this one on vinyl, and it's like it sort of folds out, gate fold speed. And it's just the inside picture of the bunch of the band all wearing like white, you know, all white sort of pajamas and whatnot. And you're looking at them going, oh, that could be a really serious dinner party. I'm not sure any of you are in fun. <laughs> <Ooh>. uh, <laughs> um, okay, so it wasn't as successful, but how can you be not being as successful as a platinum selling album? I mean, Sub Pop as a label have two platinum albums in their history. It's not that easy to do. Um, I mean, again, the big. Let's go straight to the big one. We have got Regina. Mm-hmm. I guess would be the, the natural successor to Birthday, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in terms of sound and in terms of you know, sort of all encompassing thing. I mean, Nick. I mean, where? I mean, even on the last one compared to this one. I mean, do you think the Sugar Cubes are following an interesting indie path? Um, that's a hard one. I mean, I, I, I think I definitely prefer the debut album to this one, um, and. Default does, unfortunately, lie at Einar's door. But what I was wondering is if anyone can shed any light on the story that Bjorn and Benny were going to produce it, Bjorn and Benny from ABBA, and it fell through. You see, I read that somewhere, but it feels like one of those things that might have just been added to Wikipedia as a joke. I need a source <laughs> for that. That's a... I know, exactly. This is why I'm... Citation I'm, I'm, needed. Citation I'm, needed. This is why I'm adding the caveat. <laughs> that, that it feels like that. But I want that to be true. I really do. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't particularly love it. So I, I find it the least interesting of the three. Yeah, I, f- I found it less successful. I like that first track, "Tidal Wave." I thought it had a really nice, different sound to it, with the kind of horns and things like that, a bit kind of Afrobeat. Um, and then Regina's after that. And then I find I'm losing interest uh, probably within about three or four tracks. And then I look, I look back through the track listing, and I'm looking at you know, dear plastic shooting. And I'm thinking, I don't even remember hearing any of these. They just seem to go on and on and on, um, unfortunately. It feels quite bloated as well, I think. Yeah. Like, how many tracks are we on? 16 tracks and 50 yeah, minutes? Yeah, very long. Well, yeah. it's, 16 with, it's 16 with bonus. The original one is 13, and it's 13 tracks and it's 41 minutes. Even with the 16 tracks, it's only 50 minutes. Mm. That's a bad sign, though. If a 41-minute album feels bloated... Yeah, I think the um, what I read, um, the bonus tracks only appeared on the CD or download versions. The original, they're not on my vinyl. My vinyl's mm-hmm. thirteen, um, and yeah, side two barely gets a listen. Side one comes on, Regina, brilliant. Uh, mm-hmm. Tidal wave, planet, like sing- the singles, mm-hmm. the ones I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but then everything else just sort of just fades off. Mm-hmm. Can I also mention as an aside that all the Sugar Cubes albums have absolutely awful artwork? No. <laughs> I like it. Go on then, Leo. This defend, one, defend the Sugar Cubes This sleeves. one is awful. This looks like a Pot Willie itself record. It, it really does. Whoa, 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 whoa. I will defend Pot <laughs> Willie itself record. He didn't say sounds like one. He said looks like one. <laughs> looks Come on, like don't one. defend the Pot Willie itself's artwork. <laughs> it looks, like, it looks like someone's done like a, a GCSE version of Design Republic. It's really weak. <laughs> it's hideous, but... Um, I really like the first album cover, and I think um, Stick Around for Joy, the, the third album, I love the Stick Around for Joy cover. It's beautiful. Okay, I'm, I'm glad it has defenders like I know, but obviously you're wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm not willing to die on that hill. It's, it's fine. <laughs> oh, please do. We'll, we'll get loads of mileage from that in, a, in the trailer. 
You're wrong, and um, these are the reasons, Nick. <laughs> um, but that's it. I mean, I mean, it's often. I mean, we've there have been many bands that have had the difficult second album syndrome. Uh, some more famously, and have tanked coming, you know, coming back. Like, I mean, it's obviously the Stone Roses found their second album much more difficult. I mean, this was churned out. At least this was churned out within a year. Nobody had to wait five, six mm. years for this to come back, and everyone went, oh. I know, still there. <laughs> yeah, they um, rushed. Yeah. They rushed into it by the sounds of things, and it became a bit of um, quantity over quality, maybe. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's it. I'm, I'm, um, I'm desperately trying to find things to say about this. Although, I mean, I guess at the time, this Bjork was already starting to do soloy stuff and moving. She was already after this album. Essentially, moving on from yeah, um, yeah the rest of the band. Um, I mean, how old was she at this point? So she was in a twenty-two, early twenties. Yeah, she already had her first child when she was twenty as well. Yeah, she's a member busy. of the band. No, yeah, the member of the Sugar yeah. Cubes. Yes, I think so. Yeah, Siggy. Yeah, think. the drummer. I think. Yeah, yeah. Can I just read you out a line that I wrote of lyrics that I wrote down that I absolutely says, can you do it in uh, the accent? <laughs> yeah, it's a line from Dream TV. So the the um, track's about Ina watching the television, and he says, "Like a lame turtle, I pace the room." <laughs> 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 I didn't know whether like lame turtles were um, you know a point of reference in Iceland that maybe, we don't get. Maybe, yeah. Uh, but I thought that was a great image, and then and and the uh, track nail because because I, I used to be an English teacher, I do tend to look at words. It, it's the only uh, song I've ever listened to that's got the phrase gastric disorders in. <laughs> and uh, oh, you know, the, the, I've listened the, the, to a lot of Morrissey a... in my life and even he doesn't get to that. So, <laughs> Oh, but that's the beautiful thing. I mean, if you look back at the lyrical content and the subject matter of all of their songs, at some point there's, there's gastric flu, there's menstruation and periods in one of them, mm. there's, eat, there's eating in restaurants, there's, there's motorcycle crashes, there's just all this weird stuff that you wouldn't get. To be fair, from most people, I mean, I think I, mean, I can't imagine any other band having this sort of mix mash of eccentric lyrical, I don't know, influences, right? Yeah. I wondered if it's a second language thing as well that it gave them a bit of freedom to to be a bit more crazy and well, how I read they, that they wrote. They wrote all the songs in Icelandic and, and recorded them in Icelandic as well for the domestic market, and then translated them. Which may Google account for some of the Is it Google weirdness. Translate? <laughs> oh, my God. It's, because, but I mean, you all remember, right? I mean, and listener, you probably remember if you're well, of any age. Um, when translation things first appeared on the internet, the comedy of translating things into Japanese or Icelandic and back again, what you <laughs> yes. got back was hilarious. I, I think there was a public enemy one, uh, you know, base how low can you go, translated back as something about um, uh, upsetting your ancestors. It was, yeah, 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 it was like this beautiful track. So I'm really hoping that the Sugar Cube's lyrical weirdness is a translator issue. Um, okay, so Bjork was already moving on. Uh, there were she. It sounded like she sort of wanted to get away. But Liam, am I right in, in thinking that the next album in '92 was a sort of contractually obliged thing that they had a three-album deal and they had to do it? 
I think Stick Around for Joy was, yeah, their final kind of swan song, deal with it. But that being said, it doesn't feel like, um, as opposed to the second record, as opposed to mm. that one that we've had struggle, we've struggled to say I've been interested about, um, this one actually has content that you want to engage with because it's got tracks like Hit on it, and Hit is mm. it's great, yeah. Maybe, along with Birthday, um, the Sugar Cube's finest moment, and features just a pinch of Einar. Oh, but the worst Einar. Hit has to work. Hit. Hit as I said, ouch, that really hurt. Love that, it. I mean that that is hit. <laughs> I think I think um when it when we get into this record, there's a lot of kind of self-awareness going on. I think I now knows exactly what he's doing in this record. <laughs> in the like well, the that's... previous two he's just been kind of let loose. Just yeah, oh, yeah, go play in the corner, enjoy yourself. I remember the first time I heard hit. It was you you know, like when you were younger, you went to a certain indie, indie music night or rock night or whatever. And in your town, everyone, every indie night played a mix of the same sort of stuff. There were certain songs that happened a lot. And you assumed that was every indie night. And then one Saturday, around, I don't know, 92, 93, I uh, went with my friends over to Birmingham to the Hummingbird for another indie night. And it was a totally different set of music. And I was like, what? What is this? I mean, where's... Where's the um, primal scream coming in five minutes after you hear the, just what is it you want to do? And then primal scream <laughs> turns up five minutes later. Where's all this stuff? And hit was there. And it was the first time I'd ever heard it. I think I danced because other people were dancing. I instantly remember the rap because it was as bad as John Barnes in 1990. <laughs> you order uh, <laughs> a world in motion. Um, I, I, I think I actually wrote, what's worse, John Barnes rap or Einar? Let's have a, let's have a poll. Nick. <laughs> Oh, I, I, for worse, John Barnes. Ah, Liam. <laughs> I gotta say, John Barnes because I feel like John Barnes is like legitimately trying. <laughs> exactly. I, think, I, I mean, I agree with Liam that, that, that with Einar, I know. Yeah, I think he knows that he's a bit annoying. Yeah. It's just, but he doesn't give a shit. Um, well, I've already, I think I've already lost. I'm just, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna complete the circle anyway. Liam, have I got to say which one's worse? Yeah, John Barnes. Or, John Barnes, catch uh, me if you give you count because I'm the I've England got man. A real, or... I've got a real affection for very poor quality '90s rap, so I think I'm going to have to say Einar's worse. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's a tie. It's a tie. Um, the first person to listen to this and comment Einar or John Barnes on Instagram will decide officially who is who is the worst. So, Liam. Um, so, what? What's changed musically for this? I mean, you said hit is almost as, you know, or is up there with, say, birthday or whatnot as, as a song. And why is this album better than the last one? We talked about how the last one was a bit baggy and bloated. Is this one just tighter, or are they just better musicians, or what? Timing-wise, we've get, definitely got tighter. I think in terms of influences, the thing is broader. It doesn't feel like they're just trying to do like a little, um, his little Hawaiian nod in something like Tidal Wave, or this is kind of a dark thing that we kind of did a few years ago with Kukul or whatever it might be. It feels like a legitimate opportunity that they're capitalizing on because the band's imploded by this point. So they might as well just have fun, go explore, do this, do that. And it's got this really quite wide range of stylistic influences going on. So the dark stuff, the kind of weird out of tune stuff that you got on previous records kind of is starting to disappear, but then you get um, absolute stone cold hitters on it. So gold, Great opening track. Hits, awesome. Uh, Hetero Scum, great name. Um, great track as well. Like, it's just, it's, to be honest, I think it's probably the most rounded 
and the most interesting of the Sugar Cubes album. Whether it's the best, that's a different question. But it's definitely the most kind of rounded and most okay. varied. Um, Lynn, I'm going to take that idea, but I'm going to rephrase it slightly. Lynn, could, can this be one of their most rounded and possibly one of their best albums with such an such a dog shit of a final track as Chihuahua. Oh, oh I love Chihuahua. <laughs> it's, batch, it's, le- it's legitimately batshit crazy. I mean, this uh, is, yeah, this is... Chihuahua's great, though. You get it stuck in your head. You can't stop singing it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting album. It's um, The lyrics go into quite dark areas, you know, like Leash Called Love, for example, and, and Hit as well. You know, you're starting to see a bit more of a grown-up range of sort of imagery and, and sounds which I like. Uh the the track that I find really puzzling um and I and I can't fit it into the album is Vitamin, you know, where it just stops for like a football chorus in the middle of it and uh a whistle at the end. It just seemed really, really kind of crazy song. So I like the fact that they were still really exuberant and still having a lot of fun. And I think yeah, they knew it was their last the last one out, and they knew they could do brilliant stuff like Golden Hit, but they could also, they've got the room to do something tough like Chihuahua or Vitamin and, ju- and just have fun with it. I found Vitamin, to be that, the whole idea of breaking it into something else in the middle and then coming back. There's a track on a later album, a solo album, uh, which I think we'll do next episode, where I think in the music video she goes into another room and the music cuts out. A That's on, the, on Baby, right, yeah. yeah. Um, but also on the album, you hear that. Yeah. So you're not watching the idea of it's very meta and, and sort of clever and it's sort of playing with even the, the idea of what is a song as opposed to um I mean I was talking to a friend the other day and I hate the word content to describe things that I like. And the word content is being used to describe many things, books, music, etc. And he made a good point. He said, Yeah, but Bjork, particularly in her later years, she's making content. She's producing this sort of multi-spatial thing that's not just music anymore mm. and so maybe my idea of content as this sort of money-making filler is the archaic one you know i mean what is if you're not if you're making music that's also referencing music and then there's a silent bit and it's playing around with what songs are i don't know i mean maybe maybe they were ahead of the game back in the day not a great point Liam's, Liam, Liam's got a look on his face that most guests have, which is, Ewan, shut up. No, no, it's, it's not. It's, um, you've just kind of, you've triggered off an idea. So basically, um, the Sugar Cubes have probably made one good album and all the rest of their content is, as you say, filler. And uh, they're, they're best of. What, um, the great crossover potential album. Uh-huh. It's actually, that should be just the only thing Sugar Cubes you ever listened to, I think. That's the thing that kind of distills all the cool stuff from all those records then into one thing. And I love the fact that it even finishes with Chihuahua again. Excellent. Excellent. Just to, just to get that knife in one last time for you. I have to say, I don't think we've ever done an episode where the conclusion was uh, just listen to the best of, to be no, honest. It's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> it would make temporary fandom so much easier, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Would, wouldn't it? Oh, it would. Uh, it would save but, so much what? time. <laughs> that Alan Partridge clip. The best of, because it's got the best ones. Um, but it, for me as well, this sort of sound, this late 80s, early 90s sound, particularly what they were doing, um, the indie dance, slightly, there's a bit of dancey in there, there's some synth in there, and it lends itself to those sort of 12-inch B-side dance remixes. Um, and even like the Leash Called Love got a dance remix and became a, a, a smash, like dance floors across America became massive. Really? Like top of the dance charts. 
And I almost think that maybe that was a bit of a help in nudging which way Bjork goes next with her solo stuff. The fact that there was a dance smash with her voice on it. And it, it was huge. It was really, really big. Um, they, her voice lends itself very well to being remixed and put over dance tunes. And I believe the kids still say fat beats. Do they? No. <laughs> no. Um, I'm baffled now. Okay. To say. <laughs> so, how did the sugar cubes end? Liam, I mean, what happened? Was it just, yeah, bye, see ya? Realistically, it was kind of done by the time they're making this record. It, they very quickly kind of collapsed like, um, what's the phrase? It collapsed like a flan in That's a cupboard. <laughs> Why would you, really? <laughs> that, that's that's a different podcast, definitely. Um, but a few things do spin out from it. So we get the best of comp, which is actually a really good best of comp. We also get um, another compilation called It's It, which is the thing that has that uh, Leash Called Love remix, which I think is the Tony Humphreys remix off the top of my head, um, which is the one that makes it really big. But she's also. She, she's not she yet. She's a they yet. Um, they're also kind of throwing out a really interesting group of people remixing for her. And this becomes like a pattern for the rest of Bjork's career, realistically, because of the people she's going to work with or kind of guest with. She's doing stuff on this record with Graham Massey from 808 Stay and doing stuff with, uh, like, say, Tony Humphreys. Justin Robinson, who's really connected with like the boys' own stuff, is on there. And Todd Terry, like really great dance music producers and remix albums become a kind of staple of the rest of Bjork's career. And I think this is in part responsible for it. Um, but we did actually miss a step. I often do that. No, no, it's okay. It makes more sense to go Bjork, Sugar Cube, Sugar Cube, Sugar Cube. And then we have to jump back because she actually did an album in 1990. And, oh, yes. Yeah. It was on my next page and I heard 1990 question mark. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 this was the one we were going to cover this, by the way, this note. It's not like, you know. It, it was, was actually in the amateurs. It was on the list. Uh, I just skipped through to the end of the Sugar Cube. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Liam. Um, now, is my writing right again? Are these L's? Glinglow. Yes. Yeah, it's Glinglow. So, um, uh, arguably, my favourite thing that Bjork does before she becomes a solo artist. Um, okay. It comes from 1990, post the second Sugar Cubes album uh, here today. She's hanging out, according to an apocryphal tale anyway, hanging out in uh, Hotel Bog and meets a couple of Icelandic jazz musicians. And they eventually just record a trad, like, not trad jazz, but traditional jazz standards album take loads of american jazz standards like oh my and papa just translate them into icelandic and just do this adorable little jazz album and um, it doesn't do much it's kind of a bit of a curiosity it doesn't it doesn't score you know big on charts or anything like that but i think it's really worthwhile kind of mentioning and just pointing out because it's a beautiful little kind of nugget and even if you hate jazz oh, it's adorable oh but absolutely i mean when i was listening to it and I was listening to it going, oh, I didn't expect this. And then my brain instantly went, oh, oh, that makes sense. Fast forward to next episode. Shh. I mean, there is a there is an obvious link from what she's doing here to this love of the big, 
which sort of come comes later. Um, Lynn, was Glinglow, Gling, my God, it's hard to say, was Glinglow uh, new to you? Yeah, completely new to me. I mean, I, I wasn't into the Sugar Cubes at all, although I was like 18 when, you know, the first album came out and I should have been into it. I just, it was a bit arty for me, so I kind of left them to one side. Uh, so I, and I certainly didn't know anything about this uh, Glinglow. But I, I um big jazz fan. Um, being a member of the Philip Larkin Society, it's, you know, we listen to a lot of jazz and uh, I thought it was great. I really liked hearing all those um, jazz classics sung in Icelandic and I thought it was very, very charming. Yeah, so I'm actually going to get myself a copy because I couldn't get it on my streaming service. So I'm going to actually order a CD off the internet of the album. Wow. I don't understand that word, a CD. That's all I could find. Well, there were some very expensive vinyl copies, but I wasn't going to get them. But, uh, yeah, I, th- I thought it was really good. So thank you very much for introducing me to Glinglow. It was uh, like a little revelation. I really enjoyed it. Um, Nick, how are you with um, post-pre-end breakup, Sugar Cubes, big band, big band jazz, Icelandic well, weirdly, uh, Glinglow? The first time I listened to it, um, I didn't really like it, to be honest. I was the sort of thinking, I, I guess I didn't really know what to expect. I knew it was a jazz album. And I guess I was sort of a bit annoyed that it was very trad jazz. I thought it was going to be something a bit more interesting. Knowing, knowing Björk, you just thought it would be more, I don't know, I, I guess experimental or, or challenging in some way. I, I don't know. And I only listened to it the once before we were going to record. And then, and then today I thought, do you know what? I'm going to listen to Glinglow again, just in case. <laughs> And I really liked it. It was that second thing when you go in and, you, and you've kind of, you go in with different expectations. And I think I'd read somewhere someone referring to it as being like a Christmas album. And I think I went in with that kind of expectation. I thought, yeah, this is quite nice. I kind of like this. And I, I, so second time around, I really enjoyed it. I think it's just, it's one of those things where it's just about what you expect from an album before you listen to it and the mood you're in when you listen to it. Um, it's definitely worth hearing, but probably... Yeah, you have to know what you're going to get. Um, Liam, as far as you know, was did she ever perform this stuff live? Was there ever any big show, Gling Glow shows? Not proper, but I think well, before they actually recorded the record, the way this came about was from her doing stuff at Hotel Borg with the trio that she plays with on Gling Glow. So it kind of, right. the live shows led to the record, I think, but it was all kind of quite improvisatory. It was all just a bit kind of a, a knockabout okay. thing. As opposed to, so, so there are. I mean, if if that had been more recently, there would be um, mobile phone footage of Bjork with hotel jazz band, yeah, uh, shows. Which there, yeah. there is, you can see there is some on YouTube. Uh, Bjork singing some of these, well, at least one or two of these tracks. So yeah, you can see it, and it's it's quite nice to watch. Well, she's always good to watch, isn't she? Yeah, even just taking apart a telly, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That is a perfect callback for us to end episode one of the journey of Bjork, 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 whichever one you think is right, fine, knock yourself out. Um, so we've gone through what we call, I guess, pre. When we we're talking about the setup, uh, Liam and I were talking, we've got pre, peak, and post, although post doesn't include the album post. That'll get confusing. But we've got proper Bjork next. Um, the the good accessible nineties proper Bjork. Um, so we will be back next week with a slightly different cast. Um, Liam will still be here. Um, Lynn uh, sadly will not be. 
Um, but Lynn, it has been absolutely fantastic having you on, and we hope you come back at some point in the future. Mm. Yes, I, I would love to come back. Um, I hold temporary fandoms very close to my heart, and um, you know, been listening to stuff with you guys since fairly early days, since about 2016. So it's, it's lovely to come and actually talk to you all. Yeah, I think it was about 2016, 2017, The Cure, something like that. Yeah, that was one of the first one. ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was before me. Oh, by the way, Elizabeth, we're talking about the Facebook group. We've referred to it several times. You, I, you know, uh, yeah, I, I was. I think I was Aretha Franklin. No, I, I turned up when Pink Floyd ended because previous podcast guest Scott Donald, who was a friend of mine, said, "Are oh, you gonna? I'm doing this thing with um, you, yeah, that thing I've talked to you about. We're going to do Pink Floyd. When does Pink Floyd end? And I thought, <laughs> the, day after, the day after Pink Floyd ended." <laughs> Um, I still Liam, get a sorry. ton of Madonna on my streaming service all the time. Sorry. It's always chicken me Madonna. <laughs> I quite <laughs> like Madonna, but oh, yet another obscure album track on my little random playlist. <laughs> that was me and Cy Sharp just ruining yeah. it for everyone. I do apologize. <laughs> um, but obviously, I mean, if you're listening to this, um, there is a Facebook group, and whatever your feelings about Facebook are, um, come along. If you really don't like Facebook, just do what I did. Delete your Facebook account, start a new one, and only be on that group. And then feel quite smug. You go, I'm not really on Facebook, but I sort of am on Facebook, but I'm not on Facebook. Um, so, Liam, thank you very much for taking us through the early stuff. And we will see you next time for the Bjork, Bjork stuff, I guess. Peak and post. Peak and post. And Nick? Cheers. See you later. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody, who took part in today's episode, particularly to Liam Maloney for guiding us through the records with his introductions and then sticking around to argue about them. He'll be back next week as we move on to Bjork's solo career, but if you can't get enough of him in the meantime, I'd happily steer you towards the frequently funny Dancing About Architecture podcast, which is hosted along with temp fans on Beat Rehab. So you'll find that at beat.rehab slash daacast. Thank you also to Lynn Lockwood for joining us. Her podcast, Tiny in All That Air, is the official podcast of the Philip Larkin Society. So if you're at all interested in that great poet, I can recommend checking that out. And to be consistent with past shows, I'm on a bound to mention that like Tom Courtney and Mick Ronson, Philip Larkin is also from England's finest city, Kingston-upon-Hull. Thanks also to my often overtaxed co-host Ewan for chairing the discussion and splicing together the resulting mess, and to Jonathan Fisher for our soundtrack. If you love the show, don't forget we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash tempfans, where there are a number of tiers you can subscribe to to help keep the show running. But we'll settle for a review if you're strapped for cash. Join us again next week, when we'll resume listening to the complete discography of Björk, and until then, I'm Nick Hilditch, and it really surprised me. He put me in a bathtub and made me squeaky clean. Really clean. <laughs> <laughs>